I invite you to reach for your Bible and stand with me for the scripture reading. If you don't have your Bible with you today, there is a pew Bible in front of you. You can open the pew Bible to page 657, but we'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, as Pastor Bruce concludes the series on the cross. Today we'll look at what the cross means to the world. And our text is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, page 657 in the pew Bibles. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and we just ask for uh, just to, that you would open our hearts and minds to the message this morning. Uh, we thank you for those that have been baptized today. And uh, we just thank, thank you for the, the work that you're doing and open our hearts and minds to learn from you and to learn uh, what the cross means for the world. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you have begun to gain a greater appreciation for the cross of Christ, what Jesus accomplished for us. Not only a greater appreciation, but also a greater understanding of what was accomplished on the cross. Without the cross, folks, we are hopeless in our sin, but we give thanks to God in His mercy and grace that He was willing to send His Son to die on the cross so that we could have hope, we could have salvation. And uh, today's our concluding message on this series on the cross. And, uh, you know, every religion has its own visual symbol, which illustrates a significant feature of its history or beliefs. For example, you see it up here on the screen, the uh, modern Judaism has adopted the Star of David. Buddhist uh, is the lotus flower, and of course Islam is symbolized by a crescent. And Christianity is no exception. They have its own symbol. We have its own symbol. Over the years, the cross has become the symbol for Christianity. And in some ways, the cross is a, a rather strange symbol because crucifixion was such a horrible death in the ancient world. In fact, crucifixion may have been the most brutal means of execution ever devised, and it was reserved for the worst of criminals. The very word, excruciating, sometimes we use that word to describe what we're maybe going through, pain or whatever. That word excruciating comes from two Latin words, meaning out of the cross. So crucifixion was the defining word for agony, pain, torture, suffering. And unlike modern methods of capital punishment designed to produce a a quick death, crucifixion was just the opposite. Crucifixion was meant to guarantee that the person would die a, a slow, agonizing death, sometimes hanging on the cross until a the bloated body would fall to the ground. 
But crucifixion was not only a horrible way to die. Listen, it was considered abhorrent. I mean, what would you think if a woman or a man came to work wearing a tattoo with the image of a gas chamber representing one of the times gas chambers during the Holocaust? I mean, we, we would think that's grotesque. We, we would be shocked because of the powerful cultural associations with that. Well, that's the same sort of shocked horror that was associated with a cross and with crucifixion in the first century. It was illegal to crucify Roman citizens. Crucifixion was reserved for the worst of criminals. It was reserved for slaves and foreigners and barbarians. In fact, crucifixion... Uh, was not something you talked about in, in polite company because it was such a grotesque symbol of evil, torture, and shame. And yet today, as we have seen throughout this series, crosses adorn churches, crosses dangle from necklaces, crosses hang in people's homes, crosses even mark people's bodies. And no one is really offended by it. No one, if we can use the word that Paul uses, is scandalized by the symbol of the cross. You see, today the symbol of the cross has been so sanitized by our culture that even now it's sometimes difficult for us to comprehend just how abhorrent the cross and crucifixion were considered in the first century. And it is this cultural distance from the first century that makes it so hard for us to feel the compelling irony of what Paul writes now in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Notice it again in your Bibles. Notice what Paul says. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Now, As I said, there's a cultural distance from us to when this was being written in the first century. We don't understand the the associations of a cross and crucifixion. We don't understand necessarily the, the, uh, uh, the images that are brought up, the memories maybe perhaps are brought up. And so there's this distance, and we need to cross this distance. We need to bridge this distance. And when this cultural distance is bridged, here's what we discover. That the cross is the supreme dividing line of all humanity. It's the supreme dividing line of all humanity. Look at it there in your notes. It's the dividing line between those who are perishing and those who are being saved. You see, the ancient world divided humanity in terms of Romans and barbarians, Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free. Rich and poor. And even today, we have our own ways of dividing humanity. Even at school, in elementary school, kids already begin to segregate and divide in their minds in high school and college. And it it permeates our culture of how we divide humanity. But folks, listen to me. Paul sets forth the only dividing line that really matters. Those who are perishing on one side of the cross and those who are being saved on the other side. And Paul says the dividing line between these two groups, and by the way, all of humanity only falls into these two groups. These are the only two groups. 
You're either in one or you're in the other. And Paul says the dividing line between these two groups is the message of the cross. And the message of the cross, it's the heart of the gospel as we're going to see here in a moment. Again, look what Paul says. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are what? Perishing. But it is to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, immediately we're confronted with an opportunity to ponder this dividing line, if you will. We're confronted with a question that we ought to take a few minutes here and ask and evaluate for ourselves as individuals. And that question is, which side of the cross are you on? As you see it on the screen or in your notes, which side of the cross are you on? Which group are you a part of? Are you with those who are perishing? Are you with those who are being saved? Now, I don't know of anything that divides humanity more completely into two groups than the cross of Jesus Christ. And Paul emphasizes that God's wisdom is revealed primarily in the message of the cross. But not everybody sees this. Not everybody comes to terms with this and embraces it. What the world calls wisdom, Paul says here, that God calls foolishness. And what the God calls wisdom, as he identifies it in the cross, the world calls foolishness. So, with these two thoughts in mind then, Let's begin to answer this final question here this morning. What does the cross mean to the world? Well, there's three answers that Paul gives us in this passage of Scripture of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We learn, first of all, that the world is offended by the cross. The world is offended by the cross. And what Paul does, he begins now to divide the world. And the world is none other than those who are perishing. And he divides this group who are on this side of the cross, those who are perishing the world, and he divides them into two more groups. And basically, he says, and, and these two groups represent everyone who's offended by the cross. Look what he writes in verses 21 and 23. He says, Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks, which is just Paul's way of identifying the rest of humanity, the Gentiles, they look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. And notice what Christ crucified is. It's a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. In other words, the Jews who are perishing, they are offended by the cross. And the Greeks or the Gentiles who are perishing, they also are offended by the cross. And the question becomes, well, why? Why are the Jews and the Gentiles offended by the cross? Well, there's two reasons here that Paul lays out for us. And listen, these are the same two reasons why the world is still offended by the cross even today. It hasn't changed in 2,000 years. Notice, first of all, the cross is weakness to some people. Some people just consider the cross to be a symbol of weakness. And this was the attitude of the Jewish people. The Jews stumbled at the cross because most of them were looking for power. They were looking for glory. And, a dying, and dying on a cross doesn't look like power and glory, doesn't it? In the minds of the Jews, dying on a cross, it looks more like failure. It looks like weakness. 
Now you have to understand in the Jewish history here, and Israel had been attacked by numerous powers over and over. They had been humiliated by occupying forces most of their history. And so they were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for someone who would come like a mighty conqueror and defeat all their enemies and reestablish their kingdom here on earth and return Israel to its glory days. Now Jesus dealt with this misunderstanding of what the Jews were looking for many times while Jesus was here on the earth. Which is why he often told people, if you ever read the Gospels, he would, Jesus was always, he would perform a miracle, and what would he tell them afterwards? Don't tell anybody about it. Don't go around telling people all the miracles I'm performing here. And there's a reason behind that. Jesus, he didn't come to this earth. He didn't want to start a a political movement that would overthrow Rome, who was in power at that time over the nation of Israel. Rather, Jesus intended to start a spiritual revolution that would overthrow Satan's power and establish a spiritual kingdom that would last for eternity. And since the Jews didn't understand this, in fact, they rejected it, They didn't want to understand it. And they didn't understand that their Messiah had to suffer and die on the cross. They began to just test him. And when I say test him, I don't mean in the positive way. I mean in the negative way. By constantly demanding signs and miracles. You you say you're this? Well, prove it to us. But Jesus is not a genie that we can just kind of rub with our hands, we're on a bottle, and all of a sudden, presto, he's out there and he does whatever we wish for him to do. He's not a genie who performs miracles on demand so that we can satisfy our our own selfish interest and judge him and assess his claims and test his credentials. Now, one of the results of the miracles that Jesus would perform is some people did come to believe in Jesus Christ. But that was few and far between. Most of the time, when Jesus performed miracles, the people were only interested in those miracles because of what they could get at the moment. And then they would walk away in their unbelief. One of the greatest examples of that is the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, you can't get a greater miracle than feeding 5,000 people out of two loaves of, uh, two fishes and five loaves of bread. Feed that many people? What a miracle. And if you read the story in context later on in the next chapter, man, these people are, they're demanding more signs from Jesus the next day. What? They walked away in their unbelief. And so Jesus wasn't about this. Today, people are still demanding signs and miracles, which is nothing more than a barrier that we put out to being open to God and his work on the cross. For example, people may say something like this, hey, you know, God, listen, I'll devote myself to this God if he heals my child, if he does this for me. I'll follow this Jesus if he just sorts out my marriage to my satisfaction. I'll acknowledge Jesus as Lord if, well, if I can maintain my independence at the same time. And those are the kind of testing we put out. And when God doesn't meet then our assumptions, our demands, we walk away in our unbelief, stumbling over the cross, thinking it's just weakness. We're no different than the Jews. 
of Jesus' day. The second reason why the world is offended by the cross is because it's foolishness to other people. The cross is weakness to some people, but to other people, it is foolishness. And this was the response of the Greeks. To them, the cross was foolishness, so they laughed at the cross. You see, you've got to understand the Greeks in this day and age, the Gentiles, if you will, they look to wisdom. They look to philosophy. They look to worldviews that kind of, quote, made sense out of life. They look to wisdom and philosophy and worldviews that help them make sense out of death in the universe. After all, if you can explain life and death in the universe, well, hey, you remain in control because I can explain it. But this was a false sense of power. So the notion of a man hanging on a cross to save the world, well, this was just utter nonsense to the Gentiles and to the Greeks here. But notice what God has to say about the world's wisdom in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 19. God says, listen, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. And then Paul asks three rhetorical questions in verse 20. He says, hey, listen, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the the disputer or the philosopher of this age? In other words, Paul is asking the wise men of the world, which philosophy, which worldview, which one of you has the wisdom that has discerned God's marvelous plan of redemption through the cross? And, of course, the answer is none of them has. And the fact that they laugh at the cross and consider it foolishness is evidence, then, that they are perishing. Here's Paul's point, if I can summarize it this way. No philosophy, no worldview can have a lasting significance if its center is not on the cross of Jesus Christ. The world's wisdom, listen, there are a lot of things we can learn from the world. We're thankful for a lot of the world's wisdom, amen? And I mean, I mean all you got to do is what's on your, your waist right here. Your, your smartphone, your iPhone, wisdom of the world, modern technology. How about modern science? I mean, where would we be today without modern science and the medical advances that man has made? And, of course, that wisdom is by God, is given by God. He's the source of it all. But listen, the world's wisdom, I mean, beyond that, it's merely superficial wisdom. And what I mean by that is because the world's wisdom cannot reconcile men and women to the living God. And nothing is more important than you and I being reconciled to God. That is what matters most. No wonder Paul says that in the cross... God has made foolish the wisdom of this world. So what does the cross mean to the world? Well, first of all, man, they, the world's offended by the cross. Some people consider it weakness, while other people consider it foolishness. But Paul says, we preach Christ crucified nonetheless. Why? Because that is where true wisdom lies. That is the wisdom of God and his plan of redemption for all of mankind is in the cross of Jesus Christ. Number two, the world is not only offended by the cross, but the world is judged by the cross. It's judged by the cross. The cross is God's supreme word of condemnation to those who do not believe. 
Paul called those who dismiss the cross as foolishness, those who are perishing. The cross of Christ was a judgment, not of Jesus Christ, but of the human race. Jesus' crucifiers thought they were condemning Him, but in nailing Him to the cross, they condemned themselves and the rest of humanity. And anyone who scoffs, who mocks at the seriousness of sin, only needs to look at the cross. Anyone who doubts or denies the power of sin to condemn us just needs to look at the cross. What sin did to Jesus Christ and in His humanity, listen, it's a picture. It's an illustration of what sin will do to us if we refuse to believe in Him. Sin was judged fully at the cross, and there's no other remedy. And yet we live in a culture that doesn't want to acknowledge our sin. We live in a culture that doesn't want to believe in sin. Our culture today, and we get caught up in it, we want to minimize our sin, we want to deny our sin, we want to rationalize it. We just want to sweep it under the rug. But listen, God doesn't do that. And all we have to do is look at the cross, and it's proof of that. Listen, the cross strips away all the veneers we try to add to hide sin. When we see Jesus Christ on the cross as our substitute, it reveals God's holy horror of sin. And written across the bleeding, broken body of Jesus as He became our sin bearer is God's word of judgment in Ezekiel 18.20. The soul who sins shall die. The cross shows our complete inability to save ourselves. Do you realize that? When you look at the cross, it just screams out to us. You can't save yourself. Only God can save you. It announces in letters dripped in blood that you cannot save yourself. Only God can. It strikes at the heart of human pride. No truth is harder to accept than this truth. It teaches us that there is nothing we can contribute to our salvation except, well, our sin. Reminds me of a a great little story of a little boy who came forward in church professing his faith in Christ. And so the counselor asked him if he was saved, and the boy replied that he was. I did my part, and God did his part, and now I'm saved. Well, this didn't seem quite right to the counselor, and so he asked the little boy to explain. And he says, well, I did the sinning, and God did the saving. He got it right. Listen, when Christ died on the cross... He didn't die alone. Do you remember who died along with Christ? Two thieves hung on either side of Jesus Christ. And we often focus on the thief who cried out, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And of course we know that man was saved because Jesus told him, Today you will be with me in paradise. But don't forget there was another man hanging beside Jesus. That man, he cursed God the Savior on the cross. He blasphemed Him, and He died in His sins. And so think about this. The cross that saved one doomed the other. Why? Because the cross judges us. The world is offended by the cross, and the world is judged by the cross. But folks, listen, there is hope. Paul gives us hope in this passage because, number three, the world can be saved by the cross as well. We can be saved by the cross 
You know, I'm so glad the Bible doesn't put a period on a sentence before it's time. If you go back to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, you'll notice in that verse that the first half speaks of judgment. But the second half speaks of salvation. Look at it again. It says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are what? Perishing. Now, if, if, if God would have stopped right there, we would have no hope, folks. But listen, look how he goes on. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, what people call foolishness, God ordains as the instrument of salvation. What men mock and laugh at, God raises up as the only means of salvation. And then look what Paul writes in verses 24 and 25. He says, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Do you see what Paul's saying here? It's astonishing. He's saying that when we look at the cross, we see the very thing that the Jews and Greeks were seeking, but they didn't know where to look. They wouldn't acknowledge it. The Jews wanted to see God's power displayed. And the Greeks, they thirsted for wisdom. And God's word says, in essence, look at the cross and see God's power. See his wisdom displayed in the seeming foolishness of a Savior hanging in weakness and suffering on the cross. Listen, do you want to see God's power at work in your own life? Then look at the power of the crucified and risen Lord to transform your life. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 1, verse 16. I love this verse. He says, man, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. You ever wonder why? Why would Paul not be ashamed of the gospel of the Christ? Which is another way we could say, I am not ashamed of the cross of Christ. And now he tells us in the next phrase why he's not ashamed of it. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Isn't that interesting? Seekers of power, seekers of wisdom can both find satisfaction in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now that is great news. Man, that's better news than the Royals winning ten games and only losing four. Is that the record, Zach? Yeah. Listen, understand, we, we are powerless. We're impotent when it comes to dealing with our sin. Dealing with our guilt of sin and being reconciled to God Almighty. We can't do anything in and of ourselves. But where we are powerless, God is powerful. You see, the gospel is not simply good advice. Nor is it just good news about God's power. The gospel is God's power to those who believe. And if you will believe, man, listen, look at this. Notice what can happen in your life because of the cross of Christ when we believe on it. Number one, my sins can be forgiven. Man, whoo, that is awesome news right there. Paul says in Colossians 2, 13 through 14, he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code 
with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. As I said last week, there is nothing except your sin that stands between you and God. Absolutely nothing. Our sin causes the barrier between us and God. But when Jesus died on the cross, as we learned last Sunday, he became our sin bearer who paid the penalty for our sins. And so now our sins, because of what Christ did on the cross, our sins can now be forgiven and we can be reconciled to God Almighty. Number two, because of the cross, my life can be transformed. Listen, the cross has the power to not only forgive us of our sins, but it has the power to transform your life. And that's good news for all of us. This means through the power of the cross, those sinful habits can be overcome. Your negative attitudes can be reversed. Strained relationships can be restored. Poor personality traits that just rub people the wrong way can be refined. Temptations that Satan puts in our way can be resisted. Notice what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And then number three, because of the cross, my destiny can be eternal life. Perhaps the most famous verse in all the world is what verse? John 3.16. Look at it one more time. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now when we read this verse, sometimes we may wonder if whoever really means whoever. Folks, the answer is yes. It's interesting. When Paul says Jews and Greeks or Gentiles, that means anyone can be saved and have eternal life. In other words, Christ's death on the cross is for all peoples. No gender, no tribe or language or nation is excluded from the power of the cross to transform a life, to forgive sins, and to give us eternal life. And some of you may be sitting here still wondering, but can God save me? Bruce, listen, you don't, you don't know my past. You don't understand the things I've done. Are my sins too great to be saved? Listen, there is no sinner, no sinner who has ever lived or ever will live that Christ work on the cross is not sufficient to save them from their sins. I love what Adrian Rogers used to say. There is no one too good to be saved, and there is no one too bad to be saved. Folks, do you realize that includes all of humanity? Every one of us. The gospel is good news for all peoples. It's interesting to read John chapter 3 and four together. In John chapter 3, you have the story of Nicodemus. And in John chapter 4, you have the story of the woman of the well. And some of you may know that Nicodemus was this religious Pharisee. He was this prominent religious leader. He was well-to-do, well-put-together. He knew the law inside and out. He tried to keep the laws, the Ten Commandments and everything. He tried to live a righteous life to please God. 
I mean, he was a first-class citizen. And then you immediately go over to John chapter 4, and you find the story at the woman of the well. And, of course, some of you understand the woman at the well. Man, her life was, it was anything but prominent, anything but pleasing to God, anything but righteous. She was a hated, half-breed Samaritan. Woman at the well, she was a five-time loser in marriage. In other words, she had married five times and all five crashed and burned, and now she was living with another man. This is what you would call the lowest of the lowest when it comes to terms of sin. And so in John chapter 3, you have Nicodemus, who in man's eyes, he's the most righteous thing that ever walked on the face of the earth. And in John chapter 4, you have the bottom of the pit. And Jesus comes. You know what he tells them both? Both of you need to be saved. Both of you need salvation. And of course, both received Christ. Both were saved. Amazing. So don't ever think you're too good to be saved or you're too bad to be saved. Because the power of the cross, it's powerful enough to save anyone who is willing to believe, which brings us to the question, how is one saved then by the cross? How is one saved by the cross? Notice that in your notes, you must trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You're saying, that's it? That's simple? Yeah, it's that simple. Trust in the person. Listen, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross cannot save you unless you believe or trust in Jesus Christ. Look again at 1 Corinthians one twenty one. It says, For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know Him, God, excuse me, was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Ephesians 2.8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves... It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then, of course, going back to John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Listen, salvation depends on trusting Jesus Christ by faith. But listen, it's, it's more than just believing facts about Jesus. I imagine everybody here this morning believes something true about Jesus. If you believe he lived and walked on the face of the earth, you believe something about him. It's a fact. But listen to me, lots of people believe facts about Jesus. Even the demons, Jesus tells us, or James tells us, believe in Jesus Christ, but they are not saved. You see, to trust in Christ means to rely completely on him, for your salvation, and not on yourself. To trust in Christ means to repent of your sin, and by faith to receive the righteousness of Christ to save you. You know, we've talked about the righteousness of Christ last Sunday. When we answer the question, what did the cross mean to Jesus? And it's the idea that that we have to exchange our sinfulness for Christ's righteousness. Let me see if I can illustrate it for you. Let's, I have my hand here, and this represents our lives. And we're uncovered. And when God sees us with our sins uncovered, what does He see? He sees us in our sins. 
And there's a penalty for our sins. It's death. But this is Christ. And this handkerchief represents His righteousness. Christ dies on the cross to pay for our sins. So now we have the opportunity. We can either choose to remain and stand before God in our own self-righteousness, which will always fall short of God's standard. But if we will believe, if we will trust in what Christ did on the cross and exchange our sinfulness for His righteousness, and we come in and we are united with Christ through faith, what does God see then when He looks down on us? He sees Christ's righteousness. And folks, He declares you righteous then. We are declared righteous before God. That is our standing before Him no matter what. Now, of course, God also gives us the power, part of the power of the cross, now to live out this righteousness once we are believers in Christ. But folks, the glorious news is this. You can either stand on your own before God Almighty in your own self-righteousness, and you will fall short. And you will be condemned to a place called hell. Or you can humble yourself and unite yourself with Christ through faith. And you be in His righteousness and He in us. Paul uses two phrases to describe our union with Christ. He says, we are in Christ. Christ is in us. Let me ask you, where are you standing? Are you out on your own? Or are you under... Christ's righteousness through your faith in Jesus Christ. You say, well, how do I receive the righteousness of Christ? It's by faith. Faith alone, not by anything I could ever do, but simply by putting my faith in Christ's work on the cross. So have you received Christ's righteousness by faith? Or are you still trying to stand before God in your own self-righteousness? Are you trusting in Christ's work on the cross for your salvation? Or are you trusting in your own work? You know, throughout this whole series, we've been answering questions. What the cross means to God. What the cross means to Satan. What the cross means to Jesus Christ. And today we've answered the question, what does the cross mean to the world? But I don't want us to end with this question. I want us to leave here by answering the most important question of all. And that is the question, what does the cross mean to you? What does it mean to you? Is the cross just a religious symbol or a reminder of an ancient crucifixion? Is it something you just wear around your neck or you tattoo on your arm? Or is, this, is it the message of the cross? Is it stamped on your heart? Listen, the world is offended by the cross. And if that is your situation, if you are still offended, then I have nothing more to say to you except that I pray that God will change your heart. And open up your heart to his truth and power of the cross. The world is judged by the cross. And as long as we cling to our filthy rags of our own self-righteousness, then the cross stands in judgment over us. But thankfully, the world can be saved by the cross. And this is our hope of salvation. With your heads bowed. And as we prepare for our response time, you know, we said at the beginning that the cross is the supreme dividing line of humanity. 
So which side of the cross are you on? Those who are perishing or those who are being saved? You again may ask, well, man, I, I want to be saved. I want to receive God's gift of salvation. How do I do that? Simply by repenting of your sin and asking by faith for God's forgiveness and the gift of eternal life. I pray that you will run to the cross as your only hope of salvation and you will put your faith in Jesus Christ. Our Heavenly Father, may your Holy Spirit draw men and women to the Savior. Lord, please grant your faith to those who do not know you. And may you grant the blessing now that someone would come to Jesus Christ and find the forgiveness they need and be reconciled to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Listen, Kim and Sarah are going to sing. And as they do, this is your opportunity to respond to the power and the message of the cross. Right where you're at, you can bow the knee and you can cry out to Jesus Christ in a prayer right where you're sitting. Will you do that? Will you respond?
Aren't you thankful for the cross? You know, my hope and prayer that through this series, that there's been a point in time in your life where you have bowed your knee at the foot of the cross to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. And of course, the glorious news is, once we receive Christ, man, we don't ever have to leave the cross. We can come back to the cross and receive the forgiveness of sin. Because we all know, even as believers, we just mess up, don't we? We still sin, we blow it, and God in His mercy and grace forgives us when we come to the cross to seek His forgiveness. And He cleanses us and makes us righteous all over anew. That's wonderful news. That's the power of the cross. 